All right, let us uh, go ahead and begin with uh, asking God's blessing upon our time of uh, prayer or study this evening. Heavenly Father, we praise Thee again for Thy presence with us. Uh, for Lord, we uh, meet in vain if uh, Thou dost not uh, take the uh, words that are said. Thou dost not open our minds and our hearts to Thy truth. Thou dost not give us faith. Uh, to believe and to lay hold of uh, that which thou dost reveal in thy word. And so, Lord, we call upon thy spirit to, to attend uh, unto the teaching of thy word. Uh, we pray, Father, for uh, thy word to be written upon our hearts, that we would delight to receive it and delight to practice it. We ask these things through Christ our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> if you are following along with us, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're going to begin our reading at verse 19, John 10, 19. <clears throat> and we'll read through verse 26. There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. So in the previous section, just very quickly by way of uh, review, Jesus, in verse 16, you'll recall, had spoken of sheep from one fold uh, being united uh, with sheep from another fold. The fold uh, or the flock of the Jews who believe and trust in him being united with the flock or the fold of the Gentiles so that there would not be two separate and distinct folds or flocks of uh, God's elect but that there would be one and so, uh, elect sheep uh, from both the Jews and from the Gentiles. Not two different churches, uh, not churches based upon um, uh, nationalities um, throughout the world, though there are different churches, obviously, based, uh, based in various nations. But they, again, uh, this is... Uh, one church throughout the world, one universal church, and because Jesus says there's one flock, there's one fold, that's speaking of his universal church. And so even if there are different nations where Christians have churches, uh, we do not understand that they're not a part of the universal church. There is one universal church of Jesus Christ, and uh, not two universal churches of Jesus Christ. We also um, saw that uh, the Lord Jesus makes it very clear in verses 17 and 18 from the last study that uh, no one took his life from him, that he voluntarily laid down his life for his sheep, 
whom he loved. And uh, that indicates that there was a plan from all eternity. This was not something uh, that uh, Jesus uh, came up with uh, once he was here upon the earth, but this was a plan that God had purposed from all eternity uh, that Jesus would come and he would redeem his sheep from uh, condemnation, from the guilt and the con condemnation of their sin. I think that this um, truth ought to um, have such a, an effect upon each and every one of us. It ought to shake us, uh, if we are true Christians, to the very core of our being, that Jesus, the offended party, the party that uh, we had hated, the party that we had despised, the person that, that we had sinned against uh, uh, so grievously, is the very one who willingly laid down his life for us, that we might escape and be delivered from his just condemnation uh, in hell forever. Uh, that, you know, again is a, a, a truth that it's that he laid down his life for his sheep, all of his sheep, all of those that he has elected from eternity and come to believe in him. But I think we also need to narrow that down, that he, that, uh, he laid down his life for me. And, you know, again, he laid down his life for each of you individually who trust in him. Okay? It's not just a nameless, faceless group of people. He laid down his life. He suffered as no man has ever suffered. Uh, in the curse, suffering under the curse of God, the judgment, the wrath of God, uh, because he was absolutely sinless. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, the wrath that fell on him was, was not deserved. Uh, wrath that falls on us is, is deserved. And yet, uh, it fell on him. Um, Romans chapter 5, I think, says it all too well. Verses 6 through 8, talking about this very truth. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for us who were godly. He died for we who are ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. So he's speaking in human terms here. He says, scarcely for a righteous man, in other words, scarcely for an honest man would someone die. Maybe, he says, someone would die for a good man who's not only honest, but he's very benevolent, he's very giving. Uh, maybe somebody might peradventure possibly die for uh, someone like that. But then it goes on and says, but God commends his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, not when we were good, not when we were uh, righteous, but when we were sinners, when we were ungodly, Christ died for us. And that's the nature, again, of his redemption and his love. So let us uh, pick up now with the text before us this evening in John 10, 19. There was a division, therefore, again, among the Jews for these sayings. So this is not the first time in the Gospel of John that uh, the Apostle John notes that there was some division that occurred as a result of Christ's miracles, as a result of Christ's words that he spoke. In John 7, verses 40 through 43, 
says, many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? Verse 43, so there was a division among the people because of him. So this division occurred amongst the general population that were listening to Jesus uh, preach. Then in John 9, 16, another division occurs. John 9, 16, Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And talk about healing the man that was born blind. And then it says in verse 16, And there was a division among them. So this, this division occurred among the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees said, This is not a man of God. Others said, Well, how, how can, if he's a sinner, how can he perform such miracles? And there was this division among the Pharisees. And then in the passage before us, here in John 10, Again, there's a division, it says, among the Jews, in, in verse 19, a division among the Jews. <clears throat> Here the Jews uh, refer to the religious leaders. They were divided over what Jesus had said. Jesus, you remember in John chapter 10 earlier, he had been talking about the religious leaders being hirelings, uh, not faithful shepherds, just hired punching a clock, uh, not caring for the sheep. Uh, they're just, uh, it's just a job for them uh, to do. And uh, so he compared the religious leaders to hirelings. Other religious leaders he compared to wolves that are there to devour the sheep. Uh, but he, again, is comparing hirelings and wolves to uh, faithful shepherds ultimately to himself as the good shepherd. Well, obviously, these religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, uh, took offense at what he was saying uh, because I think they could figure out that he was saying they were the hirelings, they were the wolves. And so, again, there's this division that occurs uh, as a result of what Jesus says here. Does the truth that is spoken, does truth always bring about unity? Or does truth very often bring about division? Brings about division, doesn't it? The truth doesn't always, and I would say perhaps even more so than it does unite, it more so tends to divide. Because those who don't like the truth uh, are going to uh, say, uh, we're not going to walk with you. We're not going to stand with you. Uh, we don't like that. And there's going to be division then that occurs. That can even happen, Jesus says, uh, within uh, uh, our own households. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 39 says uh, <clears throat> these are the words of Jesus and uh, therefore again I mean we uh, all of the scripture is inspired but I just want to emphasize this is what Jesus himself says think not that I am come to send peace on earth I came not to send peace but a sword for I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. 
He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. So the Lord Jesus says very, very clearly, and maybe so clearly that it takes us back. You know, it's so clear, it's so, so blunt uh, what the Lord says there. He didn't come uh, with the truth, uh, knowing that the truth was going to bring about this blessed unity in, in the whole world, um, but rather knowing, because of the sinful hearts of men, that it would bring division. Those, again, who are lovers of Christ and his truth um, uh, would receive it, but those who are not would reject it. And sometimes, again, as Jesus says, that that happens even within a, a household. Obviously, that's uh, very sad to see, but that, that's, the, um, that's the nature of truth. It doesn't, truth does not uh, uh, very often bring unity, but rather it brings disunity. It brings a sword to divide. In 2 Corinthians 2.16, the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel and the same gospel that goes forth and is preached is a savor uh, of death unto death uh, to some and is a savor of life unto life to others. The same gospel, the same truth. A savor, it has the smell of death to those who reject it. But it has the smell of life to those who receive it. It's a savor of life to them, eternal life, but a savor of death to those who reject it. The same, the exact same uh, truth that is, that is spoken, revealed. Uh, that doesn't mean, again, simply because the truth does in fact divide, that doesn't mean that we should not speak the truth in love. Um, the words of the apostle uh, are to speak the truth in love. So we can't simply be satisfied and say, uh, you know, we're angry, we're upset, and we're bitter, and we speak the truth. Well, I spoke, I spoke the truth, and it divided. Well, again, it may not simply be the truth that divided. It could be that we were very offensive in the way we spoke it. And maybe that's also what uh, was uh, divisive as well, uh, was the way we spoke it. Uh, if people take offense at what we uh, say, let it be the truth that offends. Let it not be us who offend. Let it not be our attitude, let it not be our lack of love, um, let it not be something that is within us or the way we speak or the way we act that turns people away from the truth. Let it, let it be, again, if it's going to be offensive, let it be the truth of Christ that, that offends, not us ourselves. Because you see, that's to set a stumbling block before people when it's us that offends and not the truth. That's like putting something in front of them so that they can trip over it and fall. Putting a rock in front of them when we are the ones uh, who uh, are offensive rather than merely the truth. How does Jesus view when we set stumbling blocks before others when we ourselves are what is offensive. Not the truth, but we ourselves. How does Jesus view that? Well, in Luke 17, verses 1 through 2, it says, Then said he, this is Jesus, unto his disciples, 
It is impossible, but that offenses will come. So Jesus says, uh, basically, offenses are going to come. It's impossible that they're not going to come. Yes, offenses, stumbling blocks are going to come. Um, we're sinners. There's going to be stumbling blocks. Then he goes on to say, but woe unto him through whom they come. Uh, woe to the person. Woe means, you know, that judgment. Fall upon the person through whom those stumbling blocks come. When we, again, are unrepentant for the stumbling blocks that we set before others, we're offensive and we don't care, we do not repent. Uh, a stumbling block uh, is something that hinders either an unbeliever from coming to Christ or it hinders a believer from growing in Christ. Um, and so uh, that, doesn't relieve, that doesn't relieve the uh, unbeliever for his unbelief, nor you know, excuse him for his unbelief, nor does it excuse a, a believer uh, from uh, um, taking no responsibility for not growing in Christ. Even when we're offended uh, by someone else, we can't say, well, that person offended me, so now I'm not going to grow in Christ. Uh, I'm not going to you know, learn from the situation. Uh, we can't, we can't, that's, that's how a child might think, but that's, that's not how we as Christians are to think. But the point that Jesus is making is the person who set the stumbling block is still something, someone that uh, is accountable for what he or she does in setting a stumbling block. You know, we have to take responsibility for not growing and we can't simply say, well, that person set a stumbling block before me and that's why I'm not growing. But the person who said it, Jesus is talking about that person in this verse. Now, listen how seriously Jesus takes this. The person who sets the stumbling block. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones, one of these little ones who believe in him. And a little one here doesn't just mean a small child, but a little one being one who, who trusts in Jesus Christ, uh, one who believes in Christ and setting a stumbling block before them. So there is responsibility on the part of, of us to grow, even if we are offended, uh, but there is a grave responsibility and seriousness attached to us if we set stumbling blocks before others um, in what we say or what we do, how we present the truth. Very, very important to, uh, to realize that and, and to learn from that, practice that. Verse 20, John 10, 20. And many of them said, that's many of the Jews, Many of them said, He hath the devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Why are ye listening to him? So many of them, their response to the words of Jesus and what he, the truth that he had spoken was that he's demon-possessed. Um, that, that's basically um, one group uh, of the Jewish leaders. Uh, they, they just accuse him of being possessed by a demon. He's basically satanic. So this type of an attack uh, where we call someone a name uh, is called an ad hominem attack. Ad hominem is, is just Greek for to the person. So you attack the person. You don't deal with what they said you don't try to, um, uh, if, if um, what is said is wrong, you don't try to refute what is said, the content, you simply attack the person. That's called an ad hominem 
uh, attack. That's what they did with Jesus. You're demon-possessed. Rather than trying to reason with him uh, from the scriptures as to why he said what, what he said and understand what he said, they just attack him. They just cut him down. Uh, that, that, again, <clears throat> is very common uh, in uh, uh, whatever setting, whether it's at work, uh, whether it's um, at home, whether it's in the church, simply to, to go after and attack people um, by calling them names. And again, to do so mockingly, to say, or to do so angrily, um, again, to call people names. Uh, Jesus says that uh, uh, to call somebody Raka, which is basically, uh, in, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, was an Aramaic term for like a, a blockhead, uh, you know, uh, is to be deserving of, God, of God's judgment in hell. In other words, to call people names uh, is a serious sin uh, in God's sight. Now, again, God forgives us when we seek his forgiveness, obviously. But we ought not to minimize calling people people's name, or even, obviously that's worse, more aggravated when we actually let it out of our mouth, but it's even in our own mind, our own heart, to think it, to call, be calling people names, um, uh, uh, is, is something that we can't excuse. Jesus doesn't excuse it. Um, we have to get onto his level, not bring him down to our level. We have to think his thoughts after him not get him to think our thoughts. Um, we don't set the standard. Jesus sets the standard. He's righteous. We're, we're not. We're growing in righteousness. I mean, we are justified by faith, and, and so we are declared righteous judicially in the courts of heaven, but we are growing in sanctification in righteousness. So we don't, uh, we don't uh, ask Jesus to come down to our level we have to realize he's the one who sets the standard. And he says again um, that uh, that's sin. Uh, to, um, uh, it's a violation. He actually says it's a violation of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. Because it's that type of name calling that ultimately causes within us anger that leads to actually murdering people. Uh, and so we, we, we commit... Uh, mental uh, or verbal uh, murder by calling uh, one another names. We're, we're also, again, I think, uh, when we do that, and again, we're all guilty of this, whether we think it or say it, we're all guilty of this. We, we've all done it, and uh, uh, that doesn't make it right, does it, just because we all do it? Um, uh, it just means that we're all in the same boat. Uh, we all need God's mercy and God's grace to help us in this area because it's, it's uh, bring shame and dishonor upon the name of Christ as we call ourselves Christians. But it also shows how shallow we are, doesn't it? When we start, when that, we resort to calling people names, it shows not how shallow that person is, it shows how shallow this person is, how shallow I am, how vain I am. I'm not interested in talking reasonable, I just want to call somebody a name. And to name call, I think in the society in which we live, especially now, uh, perhaps this was true all along, but I think with modern technology, the way that we have it, uh, <clears throat> and because of the social media that we have, to call somebody a name, a particular 
uh, and we can think of some names, but to call somebody a name um, is all that is necessary sometimes to brand a person, you know, like with a hot iron, to put a brand on them and to uh, what is called cancel, to cancel them. Uh, uh, and people then, like uh, in social media, uh, they began to they began to jump on that person. It becomes like a mob action. Uh, you know, uh, uh, for example, the term racist. All you have to do is call somebody a racist. And again, that's a brand, or that's a label, or that's a name. And it's like, uh, and I'm, I don't justify racism at all, but to, you know, when that word is used, you know, that you're a racist, or you're a sexist, or you're a homophobe, um, uh, or you're a, an abuser, uh, anytime you use those types of terms uh, without, you know, particularly uh, when you're angry, uh, just upset, um, we have to be very, very careful because that's, those are, again, so inflammatory in our society. And you probably think of other words uh, likewise, names likewise. Or for a church, call a church um, a cult. Um, and, um, you know, that spreads throughout social media. Um, and, and again, uh, we, we probably are all familiar with that um, uh, to some degree. Uh, but uh, uh, call a church a cult and, and uh, it uh, soon have people uh, piling on and piling on and, and uh, again, uh, without, without evidence, um, you know, that, that again becomes, there are cults, but we don't just throw the name out there without saying why a group is a cult. A cult is someone who uh, is a church that departs from historic Christianity. Um, you know, the confessions of faith and things of that nature. When they depart from that, um, uh, we can say that they, they're a cult because they've departed from historical Christianity. We can legitimately say that, uh, uh, say, Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses uh, that profess um, to use the Bible are cults because they have departed from historical Christianity by way of, of not being Trinitarian, not believing in the... Um, uh, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ by uh, through uh, by faith alone in Christ alone um, by not believing in the absolute authority um, of God's word but adding other uh, documents that are equal in authority that's the, those are departures uh, from the historic Christian faith but again to call a church that is adhering to those things just because you don't like um, some of the things they say uh, uh, is, is, is again similar just it's an ad hominem attack okay verse 21 so some said in verse 20 he's, he has a devil he's mad he's crazy um, demented verse 21 says others said these are not the words of him that hath a devil can a devil open the eyes of the blind so others uh, reflected probably others in, amongst the Jewish leaders like Nicodemus uh, Joseph of Arimathea Gamaliel some of these uh, teachers Jewish leaders who uh, had either a, a favorable view of Jesus and uh, were um, secret believers in Jesus, they uh, said uh, in verse 21, um, these aren't the words of somebody who has a devil. Uh, he, uh, the one, someone who's demon-possessed doesn't speak like Jesus speaks. Um, 
And uh, furthermore, how is it that he's able to open the eyes of the blind uh, as, as he does? And so um, the words of Jesus to those who um, God had given light and understanding, his words were full of light, full of truth and righteousness. His deeds were full of power. They could see it. These were not the words of, of a demon. These were not the miracles performed by a demon. Um, I do want to just comment before moving on. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? I just want to uh, uh, indicate that uh, we, we cannot put our trust in mere miracles. Um, because uh, throughout the Bible, God doesn't say that um, there that Satan cannot perform miracles. Satan can deceive by way of lying wonders, lying miracles. Second Thessalonians two three talks about Antichrist performing uh, lying wonders. Uh, that are intended to deceive and mislead people. In Matthew 7, there will be, Jesus says, many on that day who say, didn't we perform miracles in your name, Jesus? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And so uh, there are lying miracles. The um, the magicians in Egypt were able to perform miracles up to a certain point, imitate uh, the miracles that God was performing through Moses up to a certain point. And then at some point God said, no more, I'm not going to allow you to counterfeit um, these miracles anymore. But they performed miracles up to a certain point. They cast their rods down, they became serpents. Um, and so... Um, so let us not think that Satan doesn't, God doesn't allow Satan to perform miracles. He does. That's why we cannot, again, put our, our faith and our trust in mere miracles. It's the truth and the righteousness of God that matters first and foremost. It's the truth revealed in God's word and the righteousness that proceeds from God's word that's most important. I'm not downplaying miracles, legitimate miracles. God does perform miracles too. I, so I'm not, I'm not downplaying. I'm just saying we can't put our faith and our trust in the miracles themselves because they can be counterfeited. What we have to put our faith and trust in is the truth and the righteousness of God that's found in his word Keep this in mind, and I think this will be hopefully very helpful to you. Miracles are intended to confirm the truth that is spoken and the righteousness that is lived in the life of one who is a servant of God. The miracles that God gives in the scripture are intended to confirm the truth and righteousness of God. They don't establish, miracles don't establish the truth and righteousness of God because, again, the truth and righteousness of God doesn't need any confirmation. God gives it when he wants to, but the truth and righteousness of God stand by it, they stand by themselves. And so miracles only confirm the truth and righteousness of God. They don't establish it. Jesus had all of the above. Jesus had the truth and the righteousness of God and he had the miracles as well. Verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter. So there's, there's here 
beginning with verse 22, there is an interval of time between verse 21 and verse 22. It doesn't tell us how long of an interval of time there is because the occasion in which Jesus was speaking and up, uh, well, going all the way back to John 7, 8, 9, and 10, all of those chapters are tied together around the same feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. It was All of that basically was at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which then apparently ends in verse 21. And with verse 22 uh, and following is at the Feast, it says, of the dedication. Uh, that's the feast there. So the Feast of Tabernacles... Uh, was uh, in October, uh, around the 1st of October. It, it varied according to the uh, Jewish calendar, but let's just say around the 1st of October, whereas the Feast of Dedication was uh, in December. So there's probably, between verse 21 and verse 22, uh, around two and a half months um, time that has lapsed. What we, we know what the Feast of Tabernacles is because that's spoken of in, in the Law of Moses. Uh, it was some, a feast God gave to His people. But what about the Feast of Dedication? What is that? Well, the Feast of Dedication is not a feast that was appointed in God's Word. Uh, it's uh, commonly called today Hanukkah. Uh, Hanukkah is a, or another name for it is Feast of Lights. Feast of Lights, Hanukkah, here uh, in John 10, Feast of Dedication. But it's, it's, it's not a feast that was appointed by God in, in uh, the Old Testament. It was one that was begun subsequent to the completion of the Old Testament. It was, it was, if Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, that's around 400 B.C., the Feast of Dedication uh, was a feast that began to be celebrated in about 164, uh, around 164 B.C. So there's, there's a few hundred years from the time that the last Old Testament book was written to the time that the Feast of Dedication began uh, to be commemorated. Um, Feast of Dedication uh, was uh, a commemoration of an historical event which recalled the uh, recovery of Jerusalem uh, from the Syrians uh, and Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian king that had uh, conquered Jerusalem, that had uh, taken over the temple and had, uh, in his rule, he had basically made it unlawful to practice uh, any of the Old Testament Commandments um, related to worship that God had given to the Jews. He made it unlawful. Uh, it was a great time of persecution against uh, any faithful Jew that was going to follow God's word in the Old Testament. And, uh, and so um, Antiochus, um, uh, he erected the altar of, uh, of Zeus, in the temple in Jerusalem. He uh, took pigs, which were unclean animals, uh, to, to uh, the Jews under the dietary laws in the Old Testament. He took uh, pigs and he sacrificed them on the altar of God in the temple. Uh, this was in 167 BC. And then there was, again, the Jewish revolution the Maccabeans, the Maccabean revolt uh, against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes that began small but increased and increased until 
the Syrians were finally defeated. Uh, they were defeated and the temple was rededicated uh, in 164 BC. So for about uh, three, three years or so, uh, the, uh, um, uh, the temple was under siege. It was, again, um, the Jews were not uh, permitted to use it uh, for any religious purpose other than if they wanted to sacrifice to Zeus or, you know, um, to bring an offering of a pig or something of that nature. Uh, but uh, it was, it was uh, uh, during that period of time, was great persecution. But at the rededication of the temple, uh, it's uh, recorded in the apocryphal book of Second Maccabees, which is not a part of our uh, canon, our Protestant canon, but it's recorded there that there was uh, a miracle that occurred that uh, they ran out of oil uh, for the lamp, or for the, the lamps in the temple, and that miraculously for eight days uh, these lamps burned without uh, uh, needing any more oil uh, to light the temple. And so that's why it's called the Feast of Lights um, uh, or the Feast of Dedication. It was a rededication of the temple at that time according to um, uh, Second Maccabees. Um, here we see Jesus... And I, I want to just make this distinction. We don't uh, see here Jesus celebrating, it doesn't say he was celebrating the Feast of Dedi uh, Dedication. It says that he was present in Jerusalem at that time, but it doesn't uh, uh, indicate that he was, and we have no, no specific indication that he was himself participating in this particular feast uh, that was not appointed uh, by God in the Old Testament, uh, I think we can uh, say that uh, Jesus, um, his presence my own judgment, his presence would have been there not to celebrate the Feast of Dedication, but in order to minister to the Jews that were gathered there, just like the Apostle Paul went into the synagogues not to approve of the Jewish synagogues who did not preach and proclaim Jesus and, and who worshipped still um, uh, according to the forms of the Old Testament, when the Lord had instituted um, his new covenant to put away all of those forms, um, he went there to the synagogues in order to preach the gospel, in order to preach the truth. And so likewise, I submit that Jesus walked there in the porch of uh, of Solomon, that was the great corridor, the porch outside of the temple, not inside the temple, uh, where there might have been the more religious elements going on with, with regard to the Feast of Dedication. He was walking on the outside of the temple, the porch, in order to, that's where he always taught, that's where he always preached, that's where the apostles in the early uh, chapters of Acts gathered the people uh, in order to preach and to teach uh, the people uh, was in the same porch of Solomon. And so, again, uh, I would simply, on that particular verse, conclude by saying this, that presence in the outer court of the temple does not equal approval of the Feast of Dedication as a feast to be kept by God's people. Verse 23, and, uh, again, Jesus walked in the temple of Solomon's porch. We'll go to verse 24. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be Christ, tell us plainly. 
So they, they circle Jesus, they encircle him, and I, I don't believe this is an honest question on their part. You know, how long dost thou make us to doubt if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. I don't think that was a sincere question, because Jesus says, I've told you, uh, you know, uh, already. Why are you asking me the same question? I think that their, their reason for asking the question was to entrap him, um, to encircle him with enough witnesses from the uh, Jewish leadership so that they could use that as evidence to bring against him. So this was not a sincere question. Um, Jesus had not hidden from them who he was. He had said on various occasions, I'm the son of God. Uh, he had said to them uh, on various occasions, God is my, fa uh, is my father in a very unique sense. He sent me I, uh, into the world. And uh, he said uh, that he is greater than Abraham, that uh, before Abraham was, I am. He says, I existed. I'm the great I am even uh, before Abraham. I'm the great I am who appeared to Moses. Um, so he had given them ample testimony, uh, but uh, they want to, again, uh, entrap him. That's the reason for the question. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believe not. So you, Jesus says, I've already told you, and you haven't believed what I've told you. Um, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And so, um, it was not only um, the words of Jesus, he said, I've told you, you've, 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 uh, you have my words, and that's the truth, but you also have the works that I perform, the miracles I perform. I've given those to you as well. Miracles testify me. My miracles uh, are, were prophesied to be the miracles that Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God would perform back in Isaiah 42, verses six through seven. The miracles that Jesus performed in healing the blind, the lame, uh, uh, the, um, the mute, uh, the deaf, um, all of these miracles were prophesied to be the miracles the Messiah would perform when he came. Jesus performed them. So Jesus is saying, uh, the miracles I perform, I perform in, uh, in my Father's name. You don't believe uh, them. They, they were prophesied uh, to be performed by the Messiah. I'm performing them. I'm doing what, uh, what the scripture says. They bear witness to me. And then finally in verse 26, but ye believe not, he says to these Jewish religious leaders, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. So Jesus here reveals the real problem. They do not believe, he says, because they are not his sheep. Who did Jesus say he died for, laid his life down for? In verse 11, back John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep giveth his life for the sheep. In verse 15, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 26 says, I just read, Jesus says to these Jewish religious leaders, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. What are we to conclude? Jesus didn't die for them, because they're not his sheep. He died for his sheep. He did not die for goats. If they're not his sheep, they're goats. And Jesus says here, he did not die for them. So this, this I believe, is a, is a passage of scripture that teaches um, uh, not the universal atonement for all uh, human beings, uh, but this is a, is a passage that teaches a limited atonement to 
uh, for his sheep alone, that he died to redeem his sheep alone, and not every human being, not goats, uh, but for his sheep. The reason, in fact, Jesus says they could not believe is because they were not his sheep to whom he had, God had given faith to believe. And so here, um, faith in Jesus Christ, basically, Jesus says, you believe not because you're not my sheep, as I said unto you. Uh, I think just to conclude on this point, um, faith in Christ is the evidence that we are his sheep. Um, we don't have to go around wandering, am I a sheep, am I a sheep, am I one of his sheep? The question is, do you trust in Jesus Christ? And if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are one of his sheep. If you are putting your faith and confidence in him to save you and not, not yourself to save yourself, not your own righteousness to save you, not your own good works to save you, not your pastor to save you, not your baptism to save you, but if you're putting your faith in Jesus alone to save you, you're one of his sheep. You are one whom the Father gave to the Son to rescue and save as he died upon the cross. The faith that we exercise in Christ is not a perfect faith. None of us has perfect faith. Um, the faith that Jesus, that God gives to us to, uh, to trust in Jesus Christ is not necessarily a mighty faith. Uh, we don't have, um, I mean, I don't have faith to move mountains. I don't know about you. Um, I, I don't have that kind of faith, uh, the gift of faith to move mountains. Um, uh, my faith is weak uh, at times. Uh, I struggle at times. So it's not the size of our faith that saves us. Even the faith, Jesus says, the faith of a mustard seed is able to save us. The faith of a mustard seed to, is, is big enough, if it's placed in God, to even move mountains, Jesus says. So it's not the size of our faith that saves us, but it's in whom our faith is placed. Is our faith placed in Jesus? Is our faith placed in him as the one who was crucified upon the cross for me? And that he was raised from the dead for me? Do I believe that he died for me? Do I believe he was raised for me? That's, again, if we receive Christ. That's what we're saying. I believe, Lord Jesus, you suffered what you suffered upon the cross to rescue me, to save me, uh, to uh, forgive me of all of my transgressions and sins, and to give to me a new life to live for you. And you were raised from the dead to show and demonstrate that you are the Son of God and that you accomplished redemption. God accepted that sacrifice, otherwise you would have remained in the grave. And so, if God has made us a promise that we will be saved if we trust in Him, and He has, has He not made us a promise that if we trust in Him we will be saved? In Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the promise. We don't have to doubt that. We don't have, we, 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 we shouldn't doubt it. We shouldn't disbelieve it. Uh, again, even weak faith can lay hold of that promise. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If God has made us that promise that we will be saved if we trust in him, then saving faith says, I believe the promise. I believe 
Jesus will save me because I trust in him. And that's where, again, we go. That's where we go when those doubts arise. Satan comes and he says to us, you don't really believe. You don't sincerely believe in him. You don't have enough faith for God to save you. And again, those are the lies that we hear. But the truth is, I don't, I don't have to have enough faith. I simply need to have faith and trust in Jesus. And God promises me that if I believe in him, I will be saved. And that's where we rest. That's where we place our confidence. All right, let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing upon our study. Having heard God's truth tonight, thank thee, Lord, for thy word Sanctify us through thy truth. Thy word is truth. We pray that thou would uh, take the um, truth and righteousness of Christ and plant it, Lord, uh, in our memories. We would not forget it, that we would meditate and reflect upon it uh, throughout the week, that it would become a part of us, that it would not be something that uh, escapes us as we go about our day and our week and uh, that Lord we would not listen to the lies of the enemy but that Lord we would um, uh, listen to thee who is truth and who cannot lie and so Father we commit this, this study to thee in Jesus name Amen are there any questions uh, from the study this evening? Okay, you are dismissed.